Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, listeners, and welcome to the latest installment of MBM's M&A Snack and Chat podcast. I'm Brian Shaw, corporate partner in MBM's London office, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Caroline Urban. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Brian. Hi, everyone. On this podcast, we catch up with past and present clients or advisors in the M&A space, where we have a light, informative, and entertaining chat about all things M&A. And as the name suggests, snacking is the first order of proceedings. So Caroline, what are you munching on? I managed to get my hands on some Balsen butter cakes, good old German butter biscuits. What about you, Brian? Very nice. Well, I'm feeling a little homesick, so I managed to rustle up some Caramello koalas, which are delicious. Very nice. Well, enough of snacking. We like to linger on the snacking bit. Um, but it is with great pleasure that we welcome Al Zucker to the show today. Al spent a number of years as an M&A lawyer in private practice at large international law firms. And recently he took the very brave step of not only going to an in-house role, but also to a very new high growth business. Al is now the general counsel at Heroes, the Amazon FBA aggregator. And we have lots of exciting things to talk about. So Al, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, before we begin, as is tradition, what are you snacking on today? It's too hot for chocolate, so I have a bowl of strawberries. Oh, just the right time in June for strawberries. Let's begin. Enough with the snacks. Al, please tell us the Al Zucker story. Where did it begin and how did you end up where you are today? Sure. So I grew up in North London uh, and scuffled off to university to read modern languages, mainly because I thought I could dress travel and reading novels up as work for four years, which I truly did. Um, after that, my life basically was has been punctuated, my professional life has been punctuated by kind of macro events outside of my control, namely the financial crisis and then the 2020 pandemic. So the financial crisis took me into the law. I uh, come from a family of lawyers and had spent my entire teenage years thinking I would become anything but an M&A lawyer. So yeah, something went a bit wrong. I basically graduated just after Lehman Brothers hit the wall. And it was really, really difficult even coming out of Oxford to find a job. So after sort of assessing my options, I took myself off to law school essentially to take myself out of circulation for a year or two. Um, if I liked it, great. If I didn't, then at least I hadn't kind of wasted my time. I actually found out I quite liked it. Graduate law course turned into training contract turned into a qualified associate position and you know I was ticking along very happily until uh around this time last year when we were all stuck at home and I found myself with a little bit more time on my hands through lockdown I was very very busy but I sort of came up for air over the summer and started thinking about what I wanted my circumstances changed a lot so I had a young child, still have a young child. And I just started thinking I wanted different things. And then I saw two fairly young lawyers, senior lawyers in city practices have premature health scares. Those things in combination rather made me reassess kind of where I wanted to go and what my priorities were. And I just came to the conclusion that being a partner at a mega firm was probably not the best thing for my physical or mental health and therefore was not something that I really wanted to pursue anymore. At which point I started looking for what the next thing was going to look like. 
and one thing led to another. A school friend who is sort of well plugged into the sort of startup ecosystem here uh, in London introduced me to Ricardo. I got the elevator pitch for Heroes when it was nothing more than an elevator pitch. It was a spreadsheet and a pitch book and not a lot else. And I just loved the model. And so I was I just couldn't say no. Signed up um, before they raised, actually. I, I, I found my employment agreement and took the plunge. Started about six months ago and uh, the rest is history. Well, that leads very nicely to the next question, which is always the key question when, when you make a jump like this. And what's been the biggest challenge for you in jumping from private practice to in-house? I'm going to cheat. I'm going to give you three things because there are so many. The first one is just breadth of work. Like I, I have to do loads with little. In any given day, I'm the senior corporate partner, the IP associate, the disputes paralegal and the post boy. That, and you have to make yourself a cup of tea. Uh, yeah, exactly. I have to make my own. I have to make my own tea. It's terrible, um, <laughs> and that, that, that's that's just that's just really different from what life was like in a big firm where I was very much in my lane, doing, you know, M and A shareholders agreements, some public markets work, uh, and it was all sort of, it was all very sort of focused and narrow, and I just don't have the, the opportunity to kind of outsource it all or be precious about doing the boring stuff and the, the mundane stuff. And, and that, that was a real shock um, and something that, you know, took a bit of getting used to. Uh, the next one is working with non-lawyers. So when you're in private practice in a big firm, as I'm sure both of you know from before, you're often instructed by people like me, in-house lawyers. And so everyone is fully clued up on all the jargon. Everybody understands the rules of the game. And that makes things very efficient. But it can also make things adversarial because lawyers, lawyers like to go in and start scoring hits. Mm-hmm. When you work with non-lawyers 99% of the time, you have to be, one, jargon-free, two, empathetic, and three, collaborative. And that is a big mindset shift. The third one is on, it's just uncertainty. The, the way in which you make decisions changes drastically when you move how. Because instead of making decisions based on a set of facts as presented, the law, the wording of a contract, and providing advice, often conservative advice that the client can then do with as they please, you move into a world where you are giving advice about future events based on imperfect information in the present. And you just have to live with the fact that you are going to make mistakes. It is inevitable when you don't have all the information because all the information is not available. And getting comfortable with that and that sort of projection into the future as opposed to sort of an analysis on what you find in front of you is is also difficult. Well, that leads me nicely into my next question, talking about risk. Uh, As an in-house counsel, you you are responsible for balancing a lot of the risk in the hero's business. How do you manage that? In-house lawyers are sometimes seen as a department of no. It's done in two ways. The first is by... Being empathetic, you know, to go back to that thing, like my acquisitions team in particular love risk. They think everything can be solved through the price mechanism, which to an extent is true, but is not mm-hmm. always the case. Even after six months, we found ourselves with things that, you know, look like disputes or potential disputes, things that might turn into <clears throat> you know, warranty claims on purchases, other stuff. Like this, these things happen. It's a numbers game. But like getting people 
comfortable with the fact that you can't just necessarily solve through that as a, through the price mechanism of closing is, is something that takes a, a bit of time. And I spend a lot of time educating people about that. The other thing is about processes. Heroes is, a, is an M&A machine, first and foremost. And so a lot of it is about designing processes where the big risks are dealt with every time, which then leaves you with the small risks, you hope, which you can then assess on a case-by-case basis and have, you know, because there's probably a limited number of them. Mm-hmm. And so process design is key. Mm. The other big unknown in our model is Amazon, which is massive, impersonal, and frankly, a bit capricious sometimes, and you have no recourse. And that's actually a risk I can do nothing about. Mm. It's an operational risk. You know, Amazon changes its algorithm, as we saw like last month. You get stuffed. There's yeah. not a lot you can do about it. It's just inherent to the model and is part of why I think we'll start trying to move some of our top performing brands off the platform and, you know, into Spotify, wholesaling, whatever we, we can find just to kind of diversify that risk a little bit because there is platform risk there that frankly no one can do any, anything about unless you're Jeff Bezos. Interesting. Yeah, it makes sense. The deals that you're looking at now are really quite different to the ones that you were looking at in private practice. And you and I've definitely talked about that a couple of times before. Um, what would you say are the most notable differences, particularly on terms? And terms can be, we can keep that broad because like all of us, we've negotiated some strange terms on strange contracts in bigger deals and in smaller deals. I agree with all of that, but maybe not with the premise, actually. I was very surprised at how similar a £500,000 deal looks to a billion-pound deal, right? (laughs) A deal is a deal is a deal. At the end of the day, there are only so many ways you can sell a share or sell a business. And the things that you need to think about if you're buying or selling share, you know, a business, whether that's a share deal or an asset deal, are kind of the same one way or the other. Where the difference is come in are perhaps not to do with price tag and more to do with the just the nature of SBA, right? Mm-hmm. You're dealing with, you know, one man shops, maybe it's a husband and wife team, maybe it's a couple of friends with limited advisors, maybe a high street accountant, maybe they've, they've got a, 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 you know, a lawyer that they've found that is helping them do the deal. We strongly recommend our sellers do use lawyers. And it's just, it's just not, it's not been advised to death, right? You know, if you do a big deal, you've got big law firm, big consulting firm, big bank, big accountancy firm, all looking at it. And the thing is like super well organized and efficient, and you can just get in and kind of push the thing through a process and out, out pops a suite of transaction documents and money moves. Here, it's all about empathy. I, I keep returning to this. It is mm. one of the biggest changes actually from from the city is is just empathizing and being helpful and explaining that things that look scary are there not because we actually ever intend to enforce but because if things go badly wrong we have investors that we're accountable to and we need to have those protections and that's really the biggest difference Mm. you know you find yourself arguing about the same stuff warranties holdbacks indemnities what's in and out of scope on an asset deal in terms of the transaction perimeter is all the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we feel that in terms of, you know, when we're advising clients, you know, it doesn't matter how many, as you said, the, the number of zeros on the transaction is still, still the same. 
and trying to yeah. explain to someone, uh, you know, a hundred thousand deal or a hundred million deal, it's the same process. And in fact, it's, it's, it's often more time consuming on the smaller deals because you're not going through those, you know, the sausage machine processes with all the different advisors because mm. they don't know the system. They don't know the game. And it just takes that, that bit longer to discuss it and to guide them through it. But with, you, with yourself on, on, on the other side, it makes things a lot easier for us. <laughs> trust me. <laughs> I filter out some of the crazy that comes out of that. <laughs> As we're, we are M&A lawyers, you know, we, we see a deal, we, we all complete, we have our, our completion drinks, we're all happy and we move on to the next deal. But at Heroes, you're now on that post-deal timeline. You know, please tell us more about that. How, how have you seen post-deal integration and, and tell us some, some interesting stories or some challenges that you've seen there? I guess the glib answer is that now doing my job, I own my own mistake. Actually, the integrations was, was one of the reasons I wanted to join because what you've just described was one of the things that I sort of felt I was missing as a private practice lawyer was just sort of being a bit of a hired gun and coming in and transacting and then moving on. Mm. Uh, yeah. And one of the pleasures of the job is watching what happens afterwards. So we have a, a very streamlined integration process. We use a, a, a bunch of tech tools to essentially assimilate an acquired brand into our business. And we can do that very fast now. We've got better and better over the deals. And we've now got it down to a, a very refined process where we get our hands on an Amazon seller account at closing. And within a matter of a couple of weeks, it is you know functionally integrated. And that, that goes from everything from the supply chain to any corporate admin to all sorts of things. The other thing that's actually really nice about seeing what happens post-closing is seeing how happy your sellers are. Like hmm. every time we do a deal, we hand essentially a lottery win to an entrepreneur in terms of the, the amount of money that changes hands. And that's awesome. People are so happy and it's very personal. And some of the nicest calls that I've had since I have been here have been where I've like, phone sellers a few weeks or months after completion with a query or a request or something. And they're just so happy to hear from you because they're like, ah, oh, he's the, he's the guy who, who made me a millionaire. And, and that's really nice. It's a nice story. That's actually the nicest thing to hear in terms of integration. Cause often I've, on bigger deals, you can imagine that there's, it's complicated. You've got to get employees to move to another building. What if they don't get on with each other? What if they don't like working together? Whereas here, it's just, just sounds nice, really. Yeah. And that's frankly, one of the beauties of the FBA model. You know, these businesses are so lean. There are no employees. Usually it's just, you know, a founder and maybe a mate. There's no real estate. Everything sits in third party logistics, warehouses or in the Amazon network. Mm. There's a, often a very skinny supply chain out of Asia, not always, but generally out of Asia, making, making and shipping product, and a relationship with a freight forwarder in the middle. It doesn't look like doing an integration of a manufacturing business where you've got two factories that you somehow have to kind of get talking to one another. You don't mm -hmm. have that kind of, those kind of complexities, which is, you know, fantastic. Andy. And part of, part of how we can scale, if we're honest. You know, that's, yeah. that's how it works. And um, that kind of takes us on or, or back to the, the hero's business model, which is very reliant on M&A. It's been ex uh, exciting, or it still is exciting to be part of the process of trying to commoditize M&A. I mean, it's the million dollar question. How do you do that? So this is what you've been tasked with. What does the Al Zucker M&A machine for heroes look like? What are your biggest challenges? The management team is three Germans and me, and I, I speak German, and we use 
German advisors like Caroline and various others. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and so we talk a lot internally about the Wurstfabrik, which means the sausage factory. <laughs> the idea being that we take a lot of raw material in the form of FBA businesses and we try and turn it into an identical sausage inside the Hero's sausage factory. Turns out that's very hard. M&A <laughs> is historically, as, as you both know, kind of a cottage industry, right? It's, it's done by people in a quite a bespoke way. When you're closing deals at the rate we're closing deals at, that's just not feasible. And so the question, is, it comes back to process design. It's all about process design. It's about lean documents that cover the key points and that are short and easy to read and where you hope the sellers get comfortable with what you're serving up in terms of legal terms fairly quickly. My personal view is we got a lot better at it. Where we started was a bunch of dudes who were out of the city who were used to a city way of doing things. And we rapidly worked out that didn't work. Mm -hmm. And so we have, you know, iterated hard. And if you look at the way we were doing M&A six months ago and the way we do it now, it's totally different. The documentation looks different. The processes have been tech enabled, which just means that it's, it is quicker and more efficient and more pleasant for everyone concerned, not least our sellers. I think you may have found the secret sauce. Don't tell anyone. Um, <laughs> so, Well, we still have lots more questions for you, Al, but we are running out of time. It seems like a shame not to hear your insights. So I'm going to suggest that we split the episode into a two-parter, our first two-part episode. So listeners, join us next time to hear more from Al Zucker and of course his answers in the quick fire round. Until then, bye for now. Bye.